So glad you're here today. If you're new with us, we, uh, we're in a series that we've titled Fear, Faith, and the Future. Um, today's message is uh, the third in that series, Live According to Truth. Uh, last week, we saw that the, the second coming of Jesus is imminent, meaning that all things are now ready, that from the perspective of biblical prophecy, nothing stands in the way of uh, the rapture of the church that Paul described in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 in particular. This living hope of the church accomplishes at least three things. First, it comforts us in times of trial, times of trouble. Second, knowing that the time is short, it compels us to share the message of the gospel with those who have not yet heard or those who have not yet believed. And third, it's a, it has a purifying effect on true Christians as we anticipate seeing Jesus face to face and standing before him on the day of judgment. Two weeks ago, we looked together at some current developments that suggest that we in the United States may very well be moving in the direction of what some are calling a soft totalitarianism. And this coming soft totalitarianism will demand allegiance to a manifesto of uh, so-called progressive beliefs that are incompatible with Christian faith and lifestyle. And uh, when we object, when we dissent, uh, there's very strong likelihood that we may be stigmatized, that we may be marginalized, and even canceled. And for that reason, I, I said to you that we Christians in America ought to begin preparing for the prospect of active persecution and suffering. Now, some of you have responded and, and said that such a suggestion may be a, a bit of an overreaction. And I would say, well, you're reasonable people. You, you can judge for yourselves. Um, but don't ignore the fact that Americans in a variety of sectors are already losing social status, uh, losing jobs, losing opportunities for employment or career advancement, being censored, and more simply for exercising a constitutionally guaranteed right of freedom of speech to express an opinion, a view that goes against popular, moral, pseudoscientific, and political doctrine. So a question we have to consider, and the question that we're trying to consider in this series and seek meaningful answers to is, what must we do as followers of Jesus Christ in the world today both individually and as a believing community, to persevere in our faith in and our obedience to Christ in the face of the increasing opposition we're already facing in our country, as well as the prospect of future persecution. What does it mean, in essence, to live as Christians in these last days? And I suggested before, and I'll say it again, we will not be ready to respond with faith and intelligence when that moment of decision arrives, if our notion of what it means to live for Jesus excludes from the very outset the notion of suffering for him. And if it considers the very idea of enduring pain and loss for the sake of truth as out of the question. And there is so much we could say about all of this. I I wish you could see the the volume of notes (laughs) uh, that I have. But But in these final three messages in this series, I I want to point out to you what I think are three imperatives that that I believe we must embrace now if we expect to persevere in the face of opposition then. And the first imperative is that we as Christians are going to have to make a conscious, willful choice to live our lives according to truth. 
to cultivate the discernment that is necessary in order to recognize and to consciously reject lies as they come our way. Maria Whitner, who is pictured here in 1956 at the age of 18, and then here much later in life, was a hero of the, a decorated hero of the 1956 Hungarian uprising against Soviet occupation. Maria was sentenced to death at age 20 for her role in the armed resistance, and later her sentence was commuted to life in prison. She spent the next 11 years in harsh imprisonment until her release in 1970. She said recently uh, in, in an interview that we live in a world of lies, whether we want it or not. That's just the case. But you shouldn't accommodate to it. You will be surrounded by lies. You don't have a choice. Don't assimilate to it. It's an individual decision for each person if you want to live in fear or if you want to live in the freedom of the soul. If your soul is free, then your thoughts are free, and then your words are going to be free. You and I have to live in a world of lies, but it's our choice whether we will grant that world permission to live in us. Where, for a Christian, does a commitment to truth, a determination not to live by lies, begin? Allow me to suggest this morning four choices or decisions that that I think you and I will need to make. And the first is the decision to know the truth. To know the truth. In John chapter 8, it's recorded that Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, this is, I think, one of the, the most frequently quoted and simultaneously misunderstood passages in all of the New Testament. Uh, those last six words are used in everything from philosophy to religion to athletics to business to politics. The truth will set you free. And they're used to communicate all kinds of disconnected messages. But what was Jesus actually conveying when he first spoke those words. Notice, first of all, that Jesus was speaking to his disciples, who are described as the Jews who had believed him. So these words were spoken on this occasion exclusively for those who have made a decision to be followers of Jesus. And then don't miss what comes next. If you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So one of the essential authenticating marks of a disciple of Jesus Christ is that he or she abides in his word. Well, what does it mean to abide in his word? For us today, I think it, it means that we read his word. It means to study it, to meditate on it, to internalize it, to believe it, to submit our lives uh, to it, to order our lives according to it and to live lives of tenacious obedience to it. There are no shortcuts to genuine Christian discipleship. And God's word is at the center of the process. 
Now check out that last immortal line. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What does it really mean? What was Jesus really saying? To abide in God's Word is to know the truth. And it is in knowing the truth that we are set free. The means of knowing the truth is abiding, hanging out, spending time, digging in to God's Word. And it is in knowing and responding in faith and obedience to the truth as God has revealed it in his word that we are enabled to experience then real freedom. To be a real Christian is to be really free. So I'd like to say this morning at the outset, make sure that you are a Christian. Make sure that you're a Christian. Make sure that you understand who Jesus Christ is and what it means to be his disciple. Not as the world defines him, not as popular notions of him dictate, but as we find the real Jesus in the pages of Scripture. Jesus said that there will be many in the last day who think they're going to be admitted into heaven, but who will be incredibly disappointed and dismayed to hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. A terrifying thought. Make sure that you're not among them. That the hope that you think you have isn't a false hope. That you aren't trusting in an inaccurate and inadequate understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian according to God's definition. For a long time, observers of the church have been sounding the alarm about an increasing biblical illiteracy among Christians. I was hearing it when I first started out in ministry over 40 years ago. In his book, The Benedict Option, author Rod Dreher relates a story of a conversation that he had over dinner with with three professors from a conservative evangelical college where he had been invited to speak. And he writes, I mentioned how much I, a non-evangelical, admired evangelicals for educating their youth so well in Scripture. The professor on my left said that I had a romanticized or at least outdated view of evangelicals. You'd be surprised, he said sadly, by how many of our students come here knowing next to nothing about the Bible. This stunned me. I told the professors that I was used to hearing this complaint from Catholic college professors, but could it really be true of evangelicals too, at a conservative college? I looked around the table. Every head nodded in the affirmative. The professors explained that even though most of these kids came out of church and youth group culture, their theological background was shockingly thin. We do the best we can, but we only have them for four years, said one professor. You can't make up in that short time for what they never had. Since that night, I've made a point of asking professors at every Christian college that invites me to lecture to assess the Christian knowledge of their undergraduates. In almost every case, whether the college is Catholic or evangelical, the answer is the same. They are theologically illiterate. A lot of our students come here from some of the most highly regarded Christian schools in this region, said one professor. They don't know anything about their faith, and they don't see that as a problem. They've had it drummed into their heads that Christianity is anything they want it to be. Christianity is anything they want it to be. 
In 2005, researchers Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton published a groundbreaking book that was titled Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Uh, The book, which has been updated and republished twice since then, laid out the findings of a four-year nationwide project conducted by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill entitled entitled The National Study of Youth and Religion. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to take part in this study. It took a look at the, a close look at the religious beliefs of uh, 3,000 American teens from across the country. And what they found is that the dominant belief system of many who identify as Christians today can be best described as moralistic, therapeutic deism moralistic, therapeutic deism, which they further characterized as a kind of mushy pseudo-religion. And from what the teens told them, they identified five common tenets of this religion. I'll go slow here so you can take notes if you choose to. Number one, first tenet, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Secondly, tenet number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most of the religions of the world. Third, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth, God doesn't need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. Fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, I can't imagine anyone, when asked about their religious faith, answering, well, I'm a moralistic, therapeutic deist. So how did Christian Smith and Melinda Denton arrive at this label to characterize this set of beliefs? Well, they said of this set of beliefs that, first of all, it's moralistic because the general notion is that all God really wants people to do is to behave themselves. Just be good. There's a high value placed on being good, but good is really defined by the mores of popular culture rather than the moral imperatives of the Bible. So because good is almost entirely defined by secular standards, to tolerate behaviors that the Bible actually calls sin might be seen as good. But to call those behaviors sin might in fact be seen as intolerant or hateful, which is bad. But being a generally good person earns you a reservation in heaven when you die. God grades on a curve, apparently. Secondly, they said it's therapeutic because these beliefs say that God's real 
desire for our lives next is that we be happy, that we be well-adjusted, that we be at least moderately successful in life and feel good about ourselves. God's job is to take care of us and our self-esteem, to make us, as Ben Franklin said, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Third, it's deistic, because consistent with historical deism, there's a a general acknowledgement that there is a creator God, yes, but that having wound up like a clock the mechanisms of the creation, he, he then simply set things in motion and went to Vegas. Just walked off. He is, as the song says, watching us from a distance and rarely, if ever, actually engages or intervenes in the affairs of human beings. However, he, he will be there for us if we determine that we've come to the end of our human wisdom and resourcefulness and really do need his help. As I hope you've already sensed, there was a person in the first service that didn't told me afterwards that they, they had no idea what I was talking about. As I hope you've already sensed, there's nothing about moralistic, therapeutic deism that is even remotely consistent with historical, biblical Christianity. And if this is the extent of your definition of what, may, what is a Christian, what it means to be a Christian, you may not, in fact, be a Christian after all. As Matt Chandler put it, MTD cannot get you home. So let me just review. Biblical Christianity isn't moralistic. Is there a moral standard that God establishes in the Bible? Yes. But Christianity itself is not a self-improvement program. God didn't send his son into the world just to make good people even better. He came to seek and to save the lost, to save condemned sinners who are on the highway to hell by offering the ultimate sacrifice for our sin, for our utter failure to meet his righteous standards as he bore the full weight of our sins in his own body on the cross. The reality, now listen to me, the reality is that hell will be densely populated with nice people with good people who trusted in their self-defined morality for their ticket into heaven. The bad news is that people who think they're good don't go to heaven. Only sinners saved by the grace of God who have transferred their trust to Jesus Christ do. We may be very surprised at who actually gets into heaven. Others will be surprised that you're there. But Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Neither is biblical Christianity fundamentally therapeutic. Here's the newsflash. God's purpose in our lives is not primarily that we be happy and well-adjusted but that we be made holy. 
and by our lives to point to his greatness and by the message of the gospel to point to his grace. Would God like you to be happy? Yes, to be happy in him, to find your joy in him, to find your satisfaction in knowing that you have the gift of eternal life. The ragged lives of those holy heroes of the faith of whom we read in the pages of the Bible and in the history of the church, both men and women who suffered for their faith in God stand as an indictment to the far too superficial aims of contemporary Christianity. Hebrews 11 records of believers in the early church that some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. See, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we were to buy into a a relativistic worldview and a therapeutic model for Christianity and so accept that God's purpose is simply to help everyone be happy, then to make moral judgments about anyone else's pursuit of happiness would itself be morally wrong. Rod Dreher wrote in his book, Live Not by Lies, that in therapeutic culture, which has everywhere triumphed, the great sin is to stand in the way of the freedom of others to find happiness as they wish. Even if they're pursuing happiness in a depraved lifestyle. Nor, finally, is biblical Christianity actually deistic. God is our creator. And in his holiness, he is, in fact, unknowable and unapproachable to sinful humanity. But neither is he aloof from creation. Jesus said that it was the love of God that motivated him to send him, that is, God's Son, to reconcile the world to himself, that whoever would believe in Jesus would not perish, but would have everlasting life. In Jesus Christ, God has made himself knowable and approachable. Through personal faith in the accomplishment of Jesus Christ at the cross, on our behalf, through his death, burial, and resurrection, you and I have been offered access into a personal, intimate, conversational relationship with a holy God. Amazingly, none of the teens who were interviewed for this study and who expressed views consistent with moralistic therapeutic deism thought that they were expressing anything other than basic Christianity. So the researchers explored answers to the question, where did they learn this form of pseudo-Christianity? The answer, they learned it in their churches. They learned it in their churches. And another thing, and this is troubling, the researchers discovered that for many of these teens, 
the vast majority of them, the interview itself was the first time that they had ever discussed a theological question with an adult. So what does this say about what's being taught or not taught in our churches and in in our classrooms, in our youth groups, in our children's ministries? What's being taught to adults? What does it say about what parents are teaching their children at home? See, we we seem to be doing an exceptionally good job of teaching our children what apparently we ourselves actually believe, essentially that the goal of life is to achieve personal happiness, that Christianity is not really that big a deal, that God's like a divine butler or a cosmic therapist who requires very little of us, that the church is really just a helpful social institution filled with nice people and, and participation is largely optional. And if that's what is being taught in our churches as essential Christianity, then getting young people to church more often is not the solution. In fact, it may do more harm than good. The Apostle Paul wrote to his protege Timothy saying, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And the only thing I can think, and I'm a pretty simple guy, if, if it's true that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, then we need to do it anyway. We need to do it anyway. Moralistic therapeutic deism needs to be directly confronted and needs to be systematically dismantled. We need to know the truth, and that comes from abiding in God's Word, consuming a steady diet of the Scriptures. There is no shortcut. I really want to encourage you to be here for our Apostles' Creed series that will begin this Sunday after Easter. Hope you'll be here at Easter as well. There'll be a lot of people we haven't seen since Christmas. So go to mylpcoe.com and click on groups. Be part of one of those small groups. If if you can lead a group, we need you. Um, you don't have to prepare anything. It's all prepared for you. All you need to do is facilitate a discussion. But I hope you will because uh, this is going to be really important. Secondly, then, you and I need to decide to live the truth. spent most of my time on that first one, so I'm going to need to move quickly. In First John, or in John 17, rather, the Gospel of John, chapter 17, in what has been referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed for his disciples, and that included you and me. He said to the Heavenly Father, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. See, when God sanctifies us, he makes us holy. That's the essential meaning of the word. He does that in two ways. The first is that he sets us apart to be his very own possession. That's one one of the aspects of sanctification. We become his, his own people, his own possession in order to accomplish his purposes in our lives and through our lives. But second, he also cleanses us inwardly and again by two means. First is the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit as he takes up residence in our lives and makes us new people from the inside out. By the way, which is a a reminder that Christianity is not moralistic. It doesn't start on the outside. It starts on the inside. 
And the second means of that cleansing is the purifying work of his word, which is the Bible, which was breathed out by the Holy Spirit, which is the very word of God. If we're going to allow him to do that work in us, then we're going to need to make a commitment not only to know the truth, but to then to live it out in our daily lives. The Apostle John wrote of uh, his congregation, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. One of the hazards of the Christian life is that we can confuse knowledge of God's word with spiritual maturity. And that's why so many discipleship programs are nothing more than a biblical data dump. But spiritual maturity comes not only from knowing the word, which is vital, not to slight that at all. It is absolutely vital. But then submitting our lives to its authority and living in obedience to it. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And I left off the important line, which is, and then promptly forgets what he looks like. Promptly forgets what he looks like. Third, we need as Christians to decide to teach the truth. Teach the truth. God's word tells us that there are Three essential contexts in which we're to teach the truth. The first is in the home. It's in the home. We're going to address the importance of what happens in our homes in much greater depth next Sunday, but today I want to make a simple point, which is that what is valued, what is taught, what is modeled in your home will have a far greater uh, formative influence in the lives of your children than anything that they will be taught in the church, in the school, or in the world. Sometimes as parents today, we can think, man, we're up, we're, we're so up against it when our kids are in the public schools and they're being taught things that, that are antithetical to our faith. But I want to encourage you as parents and as grandparents that the things that you're teaching your children in the home, who you are, what you value, what you believe, the conversations that you have about what they're learning, the dialogues you have uh, that that sometimes need to refute a falsehood that they have been told, you have much greater influence in the lives of your children than any of those outside institutions. Your life is, as it were, the trellis on which the vine of their lives takes shape. The church has a, a vital role to play in the spiritual formation of young people, but God has ordained the family and the home as the primary center for spiritual nurture. He has, God has placed on Christian parents the primary responsibility. Paul wrote in, to the church in Ephesus, chapter 6, verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And guys, please don't miss that he says, Fathers. It has always been so among God's people. If we go back to Deuteronomy 6 and the, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God is, the Lord is God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. He was talking to the men of Israel. So men, let me ask you, why is it that we always allow the women to be the teachers? 
Why do we just defer that responsibility? Why is it that our children's ministry is full of women and very few men? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's on us, men. And in fact, there are many Christian men who have had no godly role model in their homes. But it doesn't absolve you of the responsibility of walking with God in a way that your children can see and learn from. Second context is the church. Teach the truth in the church. God has given to the church an essential role of teaching that's set alongside the home in importance, and we need to take that very seriously. We're going to be talking about that in a couple of weeks. Notice Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16 and 25, and he gave the apostles, that is, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that is, the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And there's so much we could say about that, isn't there? Don't miss that spiritual maturity means doctrinal stability. It means that you have been bathed in, immersed in the truth, and it has made its way in and through your life. So that you're not susceptible to human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Notice also with me that to grow to maturity in Christ seems in Paul's mind to be impossible apart from the church. And that, in fact, one of the goals of spiritual maturity is that we participate together in building up the church. Third, we're to teach God's word in the world. Teach the truth in the world. Just before he ascended into heaven, the resurrected Jesus said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Someone might say, well, that's, that's evangelism and discipleship, and, and discipleship happens within the church. Well, yes, <laughs> but don't miss that it begins outside of the church in the world. You and I are called in a world that is often hostile to the claims of Christ and to the church to be demonstrating, to be communicating the message of the gospel in every relationship, to be helping people to find and follow Jesus. There's only one message, isn't there, that that contains the power to save anyone from sin and to transform their lives, and that's the message of the gospel. There's only one group of people entrusted to communicate that message in every generation, and that is the church. 
There's only one person appointed in your sphere of relationships to communicate it to those friends of yours and your family, and that's you. They may not believe it. They may not receive it. But we are to proclaim it. Some will. God hasn't stopped calling people out of the world and into his family, and he intends you, intends to use you and and use me as his vehicles for accomplishing it. They may reject us. Many will. But if we fail to share the message with them, they may miss the opportunity to have their sins forgiven and to receive the gift of eternal life. It is startling to me how many Americans have never even heard the beginnings of the gospel. Finally, we need to make the decision to be ready to suffer for the truth. Be ready to suffer for the truth. You may have heard of a Lutheran pastor named Richard Wormbrand. He wrote a, a, an amazing book that I would encourage you to find and read titled Tortured for Christ. He survived unspeakable torture in communist Romania. And his testimony after, after being released from prison and, and exile revealed his courage to speak the truth despite fear of arrest. Uh, it spoke to the strength of his endurance in prison, even more powerfully to his ability to, to love those, genuinely love those who tortured him. Once he was free, Pastor Wormbrand wrote that there are two kinds of Christians, those who sincerely believe in God and those who just as sincerely believe that they believe. You can tell them apart by their actions in decisive moments. Words worth reflecting on. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You may not live your best life now. It's falling out of fashion at this moment in the history of our nation to be a Christian. But as one Christian leader said, it just may be that by losing cultural respectability, we will find a new freedom to be radically faithful to Jesus. Did you know that uh, historically the white face on a clown has always been a symbol of death? It's for the very reason that a clown has died, that there's nothing more that the world can do to them. And so that as a result, they're free to do all kinds of outlandish things that are in turn life-giving. Again, Paul wrote to the Colossians, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Because you have died, you're free to do all kinds of outlandish things. The world no longer has any hold on you. Because in Christ we have died, our life is hidden with Christ and God, and when Christ appears, our life will be revealed. There's nothing more we need fear from the world, so as we now face the increasing prospect that in our lifetimes, 
or in the lifetimes of our children and grandchildren, we may be subjected to increasing hostility, to active persecution, to suffering for the sake of the gospel and for our obedience to Jesus Christ. We need to contemplate our answer to the question of how we will respond in the decisive moment. See, I tend to think of suffering on a continuum, from little suffering to big suffering. Little suffering is that contradiction between what you want and what you shouldn't have in that moment when you're tempted to do, to take, to say something you shouldn't. That's little suffering. That's attention, the Holy Spirit working in you. It's denying yourself. But if you can't endure in the little stuff, how will you endure in the big stuff? See, I believe that we'll be prepared in that moment only if, only if we have genuinely come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, the real Jesus. If we've come to know and believe the truth as God has revealed it in his word, if we've been cultivating a life of obedience to that truth, and if we're willing to be radically identified with the truth that we've been sharing with others all along, that truth that we think we're affirming, as Christians. The time of decision is approaching. Are we ready? Jesus is coming soon. Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. Lord, may we be people who are committed to knowing the truth. May we live the truth. May we teach the truth. May we be ready and willing to suffer for the truth. Uh, Knowing that we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ and God and that our true life will be ultimately revealed when he comes, that this is just the the preamble to eternity. And may we, Lord, be ready and prepared to stand in obedience and radical identification with Jesus in those moments when our flesh is telling us everything but to stand. And may we, Lord, be encouragers of each other as we see the day of your coming drawing near. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.